Horror Story is a podcast about strange and mysterious true horrors. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, host and producer of Horror Story. In the show, I have an episode called There's a Stranger in Your Walls, and it's about a woman that moved out of her home because she thought it was being haunted. But the truth happened to be even scarier than the ghosts. Other stories dive deep into the supernatural, like the one of the most infamous cases of real ghosts, called The Haunting in San Pedro. But if you're into mysteries, learn about the pilot who disappeared in the sky. All of these and more are available on Horror Story right now, with more episodes coming out every single week. You can search for the podcast by typing in Horror Story on your podcast app right now. The show is the one with the yellow letters. I'll see you over there on Horror Story. True Scary Story is a podcast about personal, terrifying stories dealing with the paranormal. True accounts from people who live through strange and supernatural experiences, told directly by them. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, and for years I have been listening to stories from people who have shared their most frightening true experiences with me. There was one story recently called There's Something in the Closet where Juanita tells us about her experiences growing up in a house where she would see objects physically move on their own, but the rest of her family would act as if nothing was happening. It wasn't until years later that she found out what the source of it all was. Which makes me wonder, if you were to witness a haunting, who would believe you? Come find True Scary Story by typing it into your app right now. I'll see you over there on True Scary Story. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Listener, you're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening fiction about terrifying trips and malevolent memories. As a bonus, both of tonight's tales are Chilling Tales exclusives debuting here tonight and were submitted directly to us via our horror fiction website, creepypastastories.com. If you'd like your own work considered for production, visit the site today to submit your manuscript. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, 
and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Christine Blackwicks and Daniel A. Cardoza are voice talents Jordan Lester and Eric Peabody. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our Theater of the Minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Christine Blackwicks and is performed by Jordan Lester. In our first round of fiction tonight, we'll meet a desperate woman holding on to the last years of her children's youth. She's taken her family to a local theme park to create one more lasting memory before her eldest moves out on his own. But will that very intention be the thing that gets them stuck there forever? Without further ado, I present to you the most unfortunate place on earth. Death by electrocution or hanging? Ethan asks Garrett, killing time as we wait in line for the newest ride at the amusement park. Boys, seriously, we are in the happiest place on earth. Can't you find something better to discuss? I glance over at my husband, Zack, but he shrugs his shoulders as he grins, and I can read his thoughts. Boys will be boys. I'm outnumbered again. Not that I mind. Not really. But mom, the line is so long, and we are so bored. I stretch my neck from side to side in sympathy. I'm constantly busy with work, the kids, and day-to-day -day life that one would think a few minutes with nothing to do would be welcome. However, there is something about moving inches at intervals that makes creeping time unpleasant. I understand, but please don't hurt my heart by imagining ways to die. Are you tearing up? Ethan leers over me. He's 18 and taller than me by almost a foot, and he loves to lord it over me every chance he gets. I catch a whiff of his Ralph Lauren body spray and a faint hint of perspiration. I brush the tear out of my eye. No, it's sweat. Aw, oh, Mom, you're okay. Nothing's going to happen. Are you worried about the ride? Not to be outdone, Garrett flops a long, lanky arm over my shoulders. He, too, is inches taller than me, but a few years younger than his brother, and still willing to nestle in close. The Old Spice deodorant wafts over me, and I take in a deep breath of his scent, relaxing into him. It's fine. It's the incessant heat and the repetitive music and the crowds. Let's take a break after this one. We're almost there. I can see them loading the cars up ahead, my husband Zack contributes. Thank God, I mutter. I check my Fitbit for the time. The digital readout shows me a little after 3.30 in the afternoon, and I mentally give myself a high five. With over 25,000 steps, no matter how many churros I eat, I should still be able to tug on my jeans when vacation ends. I definitely prefer the rides where we can skip to the front of the line. Agreed, Zack says. The boys focus their attention to the front of the line while continuing their conversation. Global warming or alien invasion, Garrett asks Ethan. Zack rubs my back, but I step away, embarrassed my shirt is sticking to my back. Everything okay? I sigh. Yeah. <laughs> Damn hormones. 
I feel fucking out of control. Those boys are going to be the death of me. I take a deep breath and let it out slowly as we move forward a few paces in line. We needed some time as a family to reconnect. I had lost my mom around the holidays, and with Ethan leaving in the fall for college, I wanted to stuff the boys back into my womb to keep them safe and near me. Hanging on to time with the kids felt like trying to wrangle water. It either slipped away or dried out before I could get a grip on it. The roller coaster takes off like a rocket and immediately pisses me off. The G-force pulls my cheeks into a rictus of terror, while a flash of light captures my horror for purchase in the gift shop after the ride. I hate to be scared, and I loathe myself for not researching the ride before I got on it. The harness pins me to the seat of the coaster, and awkwardly holds me in its molded plastic embrace through twists, drops, and turns in the dark cavernous space. Neon freeway signs guide our passage as the track weaves through the faux pitch of night. Cold air caresses my skin, but the wind is as manufactured as the manicured lawns and airsets lakes of this fantasy land. Finally, we round the last corner into the flat straightaway. The snake of cars comes to an abrupt stop in the middle of the final stretch of the track. I can barely turn to make eye contact with my husband because my head is braced to the seat, but can see my kids in the seat in front of us smiling and laughing. Concrete walls surround us as rock music blares out of the speakers. I need to pee. A sign up ahead signals the conclusion. I'm relieved to know the end is in sight. Zack and I are the last two passengers, the caboose of this adventure train. We come to a complete halt. The kids only have enough movement to turn their heads to the side to shout back to us. What did you think? Garrett yells. Ethan chimes in, totally cool, yeah? Awesome. Best ride ever, I shout back. I can see Garrett smile because he's sitting in front of Zack. So you hated it, right, Mom? What gave it away? I grin. I can't wait to escape off this thing. Did you like it? I ask Zack. Sure, it was fun, but I'm ready to go back to the hotel and chill, Zack responds. Truer words, babe. The pressure on my bladder is growing urgent, and I push against the restraint which hardly budges. What's going on? Doesn't it seem weird to be stuck here? Shouldn't we be moving or something? I ask Zack. Zack shakes his head unconcerned. I'm sure they're just unloading the group ahead of us. He reaches out and pats my hand. Are you sure we aren't stuck? I pushed against the padded metal contraption testing my wiggle room. It doesn't shift a centimeter. This thing is safely constructed in the 21st century, and I am well and truly trapped in my seat. I want off this ride. Zack's harness appears a little looser, like maybe he didn't pull it down across his chest as tightly as I had. Can you shift that thing? I ask. He presses and the unit clunks, allowing for a slight movement. Nope, I'm pretty secure here. But it seems like you have more space in comparison to mine. That's because of my wide shoulders. He flashes me a wink and flexes his bicep. I wish for his levity as I twist again, trying not to let my fear of confined spaces weave its tendrils in me. In front of us, Garrett turns his head and shouts back to us. I think the coaster broke down. Dad, check over the side. Do you see a walkway? I study my surroundings. We are in a tunnel... The track is raised a bit from the floor, but there is a sidewalk off to the right side of the car where we could depart. The entirety of our chain is stuck in the middle of the space. A neon arch signals the tantalizingly close exit just around the bend, toward what I can only hope is the disembarking area. The area is no frills, 
all concrete blocks and low lighting meant to be whizzed by in a blink. Ethan asks, Do you think we'll be evacuated like we did from Highland Falls? The excitement in his voice palpable. I strain to listen to them because they are a couple of feet away from us. Even though we are sharing the same car, the harness makes it hard for them to move their heads enough for their voices to reach us. The short guitar-laden riff keeps replaying, an indication we shouldn't be sitting for this long. A recorded voice pops over the music. The ride is experiencing technical difficulties. Please stay off the track. The ride may resume without warning. I stifle a giggle and shove against my restraint. And how exactly would we be able to hop out to stretch our legs on the track? Maybe it's a warning to the workers, Zack asks. Ethan shouts, Cool! Do you think we'll journey behind the scenes again? I don't know. Now that we are stuck, my bladder clenches and I wish desperately I had used the bathroom beforehand. I consider what will happen if I pee on the seat. It's molded plastic, so I'm fairly certain I would end up sitting in a puddle. Luckily for Zack, we each have our own precast space, so my shame would be my own. I imagine my humiliation as we roll into the unloading dock and the groans of the workers as they witness my soaked ass leaving the ride, all resulting in a loudspeaker telling the guests the coaster is temporarily closed for hazardous cleaning. Boos and jeers follow me as I depart. My kids, horrified, walk as far ahead of me as possible so as not to be associated with me in any way. To distract myself, I ask, Do you think a group is stuck in the middle? Like, what if they are stuck upside down? Surely someone else must have it worse. The G-force or gravity would settle the cars to a flat spot, my husband calmly answers. Do you think there's a safety mechanism? A catch release to open our seats, or do you think it needs a command? There's probably a catch hidden, but it would be extremely difficult to find. Too many idiots would be exploiting the system. My heart rate picks up, and the walls appear to shift closer. The air coming into my lungs feels heavier, as if my lung capacity has shrunk and the air can't inflate my chest. Zack reaches across the seat and takes my hand. The loudspeaker comes back on with the same recorded message about a problem with the track. The time is 4.36pm, and we are still stuck. No workers come to rescue us. The cart hasn't moved, and the recorded message hasn't changed. We've diligently searched for any release buttons, but if there is one to push, we haven't found it. My bladder is pulsing with my heartbeat and my thighs and knees are shoved together so forcefully that if it wasn't for the pain, I'd wonder from the sweat buildup if I'd already succumbed to the pressure. There are six cars in our little train, each loaded with four passengers. We can't tell much about the people ahead of us, as the coaster spans 35 feet, and no one can turn their heads more than slightly to the sides due to the head restraints. The music is so loud we can scarcely understand the kids in the seats in front of us, let alone the car in front of them. I can count the hairs on the boys' heads, yet I can't reach out to stroke them. Zack maneuvered his phone out of the holder in front of him, but has no cell service. Ethan tried to grab his phone from the front pocket and proceeded to drop it on the floor. He shuffled with his feet to try to snag it, but so far with zero success. Garrett, having watched Ethan and given us the humorous play-by-play, carefully retrieved his phone and was currently playing a game, which kept them both occupied for now. Zack, what is going on? I ask for the hundredth time. I don't know. This can't be good. My breath hiccups as I try to keep from crying. I know. What could possibly be keeping them from coming to rescue us? 
The lawsuits alone should have them rushing to release us. Why hasn't a real person made an announcement? Zack stares at me with bleak eyes and holds my hand tighter. I wish I hadn't pulled away from him in line. I'm scared, I whisper. I've since peed the seat, and my butt is already starting to dry out. The boys also had to go, but at least they had the option to aim for their feet. Pain is starting to shoot down the sides of my neck from being locked in the same place for so long. Garrett's battery died, and now they keep asking more questions that we can't answer. We've played several rounds of I've Never and Would You Rather. The game stopped when Ethan asked, Would you rather die slowly of starvation and be dead, or die fast but live on eating others for the rest of your life? What the fuck, Ethan? Dude, not cool! I don't want to admit how much his question unsettled me. At 6.43, it's after sundown and still nothing has happened. Let's take a break. I'm struggling to hear anyway. What? I'm joking. Right, but I love you and don't like to think about those things, okay? The boys turn forward and I trade a look with Zack and we both shake our heads. My skull is pounding and an internal pressure is building like I'm going to burst out of my skin. I'm not sure I'll be able to enter into an enclosed space after this experience ever again. I'm craving the touch of my family. I want Zack's arms around me. I want Ethan stepping on my toes and Garrett's arms hanging around my shoulders. I start to hyperventilate and push those thoughts away. We'll be out soon enough, I tell myself. Over the music, a woman screams to be heard. Hello? Can someone call 911? I think my husband is having a heart attack. A murmur goes up as the canned announcement breaks in and one man yells out, Lady, I've tried my cell phone a thousand times. I can't receive any service in here. The system is down. Another woman shouts out, I'm sorry, we've had the same experience. The first woman's lilting voice makes me wonder if she's of southern descent. Does anyone know what I should do? I can't reach him. Her voice breaks into a sob. Tears of commiseration rise in my eyes as I peek at Zack and wonder what I would do. My son gazes back at me and I shake my head miserably. We've been stuck for hours. We have a bag of kettle corn and half a bottle of water. My kids, screwing around, spilled what soda they had left arguing about whose it was, and so they have nothing. My daughter is going to try to dislocate her arm to get out of the seat, a man yells out to the group. Will that work? I ask my husband. It can't hurt, he answers. Ma'am, tell your husband to hold on. Amina is twisting herself right now. She's super flexible, and she's willing to try to knock her arm out of the socket if it means getting us help. Yes, please, hurry. Her voice is hysterical and keeps breaking as she tries to be louder than the guitar riff. He's having trouble breathing. A few minutes later, a little slip of a girl is standing outside of the tracks on the walkway. Everyone starts applauding. Sweat is trickling down the sides of her face. Her arm is hanging perversely, and yet she holds her head proudly as she walks down the line of cars to the front. A mischievous grin comes across her face and she gives a quick bow, holding her one working arm out like a performer. As she walks down the track, I can see her bottom is wet from sitting in a puddle. We cheer her and she limps off, holding her arm gingerly as she rounds the corner and exits out of sight to find help. Excited whispers and chatting reanimates the group. I think my feet are numb. I try to wiggle my toes, but it's just something to say. I feel reinvigorated. Finally, something will happen and we can clear off this damn ride. 
Zack grasps my hand and squeezes. Not for long. I can't wait to go home and take a shower. Mom, do you have any water? We are dying up here! Garrett yells back at us. Well, if you guys hadn't been fooling around, I respond. Please, it was Ethan's fault. Help is coming. Dad can reach, right, Dad? The hopeful expression in his eyes about breaks my heart. Whatever is keeping people from liberating us can't be good. While I try not to think about it, it's all I can do to keep my mind from ping-ponging on possibilities. Why hasn't anyone come looking for us? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. In a place dedicated to providing outstanding experiences, this situation is more than a little abnormal. And in a world where lawsuits are a dime a dozen, well... I glance at Zach. What do you think? You guys can wait a few more minutes. Teach you a lesson, he says. I narrow my eyes at Zack and he doesn't look at me. I keep obsessively looking at the time. The guitar rift lasts three minutes, 43 seconds. The announcement, 25 seconds. And in between, there is a blessed five seconds of bliss. It's been one hour since Amina left. Zack is pelting the boys with the kettle corn challenging them to catch it with their mouths, which serves to occupy and distract their starving bellies. The announcement ends, and in the window of silence I make out a pop-pop-pop, which sounds like distant gunfire. I pull a muscle in my neck, jerking my head to Zack. Did you hear that? He shakes his head. What? The music starts up again. Keep throwing popcorn, I hiss. Zack frowns at me and complies. I reach over and seize his hand in a death grip. I think I heard gunfire. His eyes widen. The message ends, and we both hunch forward, straining our ears. Zack watches me as he concentrates, and then I catch a rhythmic rat-tat before the guitar screams out over the speakers. We both sag back into our seats. Garrett's turned to face us, and his eyeballs scan back between the two of us. What's going on? He asks. Zack throws a kernel and nails him smack on the nose. Garrett grabs the corn and pops it into his mouth, allowing himself to be distracted. It must be pretty bad for her not to return, Ethan states. There is no point wondering, Zack says, trying to shut down speculation. All it does is stop the kids from talking to us as they whisper back and forth with each other. Did you hear anything? I ask. I don't think so. Well, keep listening. I think the second time I might have heard an automatic weapon. That can't be right, right? not here. I think you are getting yourself worked up. Just breathe, Zack says. I will once I get out of this seat. 
He mimics taking a deep breath and blowing it out. I yank my hand away from his and face forward. A loud wail interrupts my thoughts of throttling Zack. I think the woman's husband died, I whisper, as if I'm afraid she will overhear us. Where is the girl? I ask as I reach back to clutch his hand. What could be keeping her? What is happening out there? Do you think this is it? Are we going to die here? I hope not. Is there anything we can be doing? Well, that's why I didn't give the boys the water. Yeah, I figured as much, I say grimly. I occupy myself with going over every square millimeter of space I occupy, but it's useless. There aren't any screws or knobs for me to try to manipulate. Someone screams, Oh my god! What is happening? A voice sounds above the music. A wave of panicked voices surge over the zippy beat. Someone whistles sharply. A man's voice calls out, There is no easy way to say this, but the woman's husband who died of a heart attack appears to have come back to life and is trying to eat her. I turned to Zack and started to cry. The kids peer back at us with panic in their eyes. I struggle against my restraints. I look at Zack. Is there any way I can do what that kid did? Can I dislocate myself to twist out of this thing? Zack's frantically shoving against the restraint. None of us are flexible, so bending our way out of the situation is out of the question. I catch heads bobbing as the people in front of us gyrate with what I assume is the same ferocity as us. Straightjackets would be as damning. Mom, I'm scared, Garrett yells. Me too, buddy. But hold on. Try to wiggle out. Do whatever you can to maneuver out of your seat. Break your arm if you need to. We have to get out. Our lives depend on it. I start hitting my shoulder against the plastic molding. With my shoulders firmly secured, I can't get a good enough angle or enough momentum to twist enough to make a difference. I scream in frustration. Ethan squints at Zack because he can't quite turn enough to make eye contact with me. I force a laugh. <laughs> I'm just trying to hulk it. I thought a little extra inner power might help. He nods. Not believing me, but wanting to. When I pictured all the dangers my kids would face... I imagine things outside of my control. Strangers, someone luring my kid with candy or following a ball out into the street. As they got older, I switched to online fears, which morphed into concerns about alcohol or heroin or antibiotic-resistant chlamydia. But I didn't think I would end up watching them die in front of me while I could do nothing but witness. This was the most fucked-up hell I could imagine. We joked about a zombie apocalypse... Jesus, what had Ethan said? Eating others for the rest of your life. Surely this had to be some sort of reality TV joke, and someone was going to bust out any moment, and... Mom, I don't want to die like this. Garrett shouts, tears streaming down his face. I know. We will figure out a way. Mom, I don't want to be a zombie. He cries, hands pushing against the bars, holding tight against his shoulders. I flashed to him on a baby swing, face screwed up, arms outstretched, hollering for me to rescue him. Ethan starts jumping up in his seat. Garrett, shut up! I remember one day when I got mad at Ethan for something stupid when he was two and yelled at him. Instead of crying, he laughed at me as if my overreaction was the funniest thing in the world. We'll figure this out. Right, Zach? We got this. Zach is silent as he studies the front of the cars. And I'm so angry with him for not fixing this. 
Why can't he fix this? Why can't I? Zack! I scream. We can't let this happen to them. We've got to do something. Zack looks at me with tears in his eyes and smiles. His hand is holding mine, and he blows me a kiss. And I breathe. A loud whistle rips over the music. Startled, I glance up. A small figure limps into view. Behind her is an undead cavalry. Amina's head dangles and swings. Her hair hangs in her face so I can't make out her features. I strain my eyes to understand what I am seeing. At first, my eyes think she is moving funny because of her dislocated arm, but I catch the shine of white bone and understand the arm is no longer attached. Behind her follows six tourists. Because of the dimness, it would be easy to think this is the rescue we've been waiting for. But deep down, I recognize they are not our salvation. My chest vibrates with a hum rising and resounding through my clenched teeth. They don't appear dead. More like plastic dolls puffed up like marshmallows. Their skin is tight and shiny as if stretching to contain their fluids. Blood should be gushing out of the missing bits and pieces, but instead the raw flesh is startling bright like the red scales of a koi fish. One rather large woman has had her breasts ripped off and her belly removed, but her double chin is intact. Her empty ribcage gleams in the twilight with an inner pearlescence. Mom! I hear. I grip Zack's hand and my bones pulverize from his pressure. I close my eyes. Shut your eyes, guys. I love you. Shut your eyes. Buzzing vibrations itch in tight threads. The rippling crimson waves distort my vision. Hunger roars and recedes, and like the ocean, it will never be satiated. I lift my head and push away. No more is to be had. My hand tangles and I tug, eager to move on. When my hand frees, it loosens an object that falls into my lap. Light is sucked into its depths. Oily metal fills my nose and the hunger urges me to move on. I pause. Cold sinks into my thighs and I try to understand the object. Gun. This is a gun. I hold the word in my mouth as I grasp it with my hand. I try to stand and fall over. I try to stand and fall over. I slide on the ground. A part of me scrapes against the pavement. A piece of white chalk on a black chalkboard flashes in my mind and is gone. Meaning is as ephemeral as the memories of who or what I am. I rise to my knees and am able to place one foot down and then the other. I'm not right. The emptiness in me howls and eats my thoughts. Everything but the hunger. I breathe the air, searching for something to fill the clamoring void. A scent on the breeze that is not food calls insistently. I peer down at my hand and observe I am clutching the black object. My hand loosens to let go. My mouth remembers the word, gun, but keeps it safe, tight within my lips. I increase my grip. I trip 
and get back up. I trip and get back up. A gust of wind blows against my face and the aroma is stronger. I know this scent and it guides me into a dark carnivorous space. My ears hurt with the loud sound and I almost leave. The hunger cannot detect food, but the scent is stronger here and its claws are sharper than the hunger. The world is washed in cerise ribbons. The odor is in front of me, but I don't understand what I see. I pause and try to remember, but hunger needles me with every cell, leaving no room for anything else. I move forward to take one last inhalation of the smell that is better than hunger. I trip and my arm falls against one of the objects, no longer food. Soft hair brushes against my bare skin. Mom, I don't want to be a zombie. I remember screaming in my head. The word safely held releases from my mouth. Gun. I raise my hand and point and pull. The hunger chatters against the ringing in my ears. There is another, and I reach out to touch before I point the gun again. The harsh noise distracts the hunger. In that moment, I am satiated. The oily metal does not call like food, yet it feeds. I move it to my mouth and put it in. The cold burns my lips. And I pull. I hope you enjoyed The Most Unfortunate Place on Earth, as written by Christine Blackwicks and performed by Jordan Lester. If you'd like to see more of author Christine Blackwick's work, you'll find more of them on our official horror fiction site, creepypastastories.com. Just search for her there by name. As for voice actress Jordan Lester, the runner-up in our 2016 Evil Idol voice acting competition, you'll find more of her on our official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, where she's performed dozens of stories over the years. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you as written by Daniel A. Cardoza and is performed by Chilling Tales for Dark Nights 2019 Evil Idol voice acting competition runner-up, Eric Peabody. In it, we'll be introduced to a man who is taking the scenic route on his long descent to madness. He finds himself at an internal crossroads with a sinister story to tell and a warning to give. Now, without further ado, I present to you Broken Marble Cherry Bowl. Grande Nono died making a living, like Papa. He was born with his blue denim sleeves rolled up. He and Grande Nona are buried just a few miles south of the Apuan Mountains on the Alps' Italian side. They've been rotting away in a small village cemetery near the town of Caravaggio. Caravaggio, Italy, is in the province of Bergamo in Lombardy, Italy, 40 kilometers northeast of Milan's municipality. Carrara is in central Italy. Carrara is in the provinces of Massa and Carrara. The region is famous for the white and blue-gray marble quarried there. 
The brilliant, almost translucent blue and gray exist as arteries and veins, frozen in memoriam. The Carione River gushes in the winter through the canyons of the region. Flash floods in the spring have been known to cleanse citizens clear out into the Ligurian Sea. At first glance, the Apuan Alps of northwest Tuscany's Carrara region are pure white. You can imagine snow being born in the high castle crags. Early train travelers through the regional mountains had been cautioned of the risk of blindness due to the marble dust and glare from all the whiteness. The talc of powder is said to be under the control of no one other than the wind, a stiff wind that wants nothing to do with humankind. Most travel guides, even today, will tell you the Carrara region is famous for three things. Marble, anarchy, and pig fat. This unlikely trio is intertwined as deeply as the mineral veins striating the marbled mountains. Since ancient Roman times, Carrara's Apuan Alps have supplied marble for some of the world's most prized sculptures. Carrara is the marble of Michelangelo's Pieta, Jean-Antoine Houdin's George Washington, and New Delhi's vast Oxardam Temple. The stone is blessed with luminosity, its networks of blue arteries and veins, nature's psychological Rorschach test ranges from grayish to purple. In monolithic form, it can support the sky, like Half Dome in Yosemite, California. It has been winnowed down into the translucence of light itself in thin slabs, a fitting lid on an iridescent coffin. My name is David. I'm a little softer than marble, but much colder. It's taken a while to get here, but that's what you get when you grow up in the middle of a nightmare. This story isn't so much about me. It's mostly about us. Yes, dear reader, you and me. Us humans, with all our ugliness, beauty, and pain. It's about the idiosyncrasies and occasional flaws of raising children. Children whose only intent is to live once born. There's not one baby book available online or in a storefront about how to raise a monster. I can assure you, the parents that know how to don't need any damned instructions. Don't get me wrong, I enjoy a wonderful life especially now that I've lived alone for just over a decade. Papa and Mama are back in northern Italy, going on eleven years now. They will be back, not to worry. In most ways, they've never really left. They are like shadows that remain hidden, but for midnight. When I say that they are not really being gone... By that, I mean there are very few places in this rundown house where they don't exist. And outside, they're out there too. Papa is in the drippy faucet, the one he couldn't fix. And so I put up with it and wait. It's just off their bedroom, 
on the second floor. Now that they're gone, I sleep in their queen. Papa is in the crazy garden. Jesus, it's insanely productive. Most of us Italians are birthed with green thumbs. He's no exception. Hell, he's placed enough bullshit in the dirt to turn the backyard into a greenhouse. The soil can't help itself. It's rich and loamy. He's in the tomato steaks, the ones he used his machete to axe into six-foot lengths. The steaks are round and made out of two-inch dried bamboo. He uses four to stand up the cages, cages meant to confine the beautiful green and red of the plants. Papa makes the wire cages, too. It seems he makes everything except the water. In July, once the plants have taken hold, he uses the iron enclosures to jail all the tomatoes with cheap labor until they are forced to ripen. The rake, he's damned well in it. Papa's in the sweaty oil on the tacky handle. He's also in the missing hickory slivers that have ended up in his calloused palms. I can even feel him in the shovel, the square and the round one. Papa's strong hands are there, the ones that he'd forced around my throat. The rounded shovel has a gravedigger's blade, having killed a rat or two. It acts as guillotines and can be used to take out Napoleon's armies of screaming tomato worms, as well as any meandering garden snake. Father is in the pantry, more stubborn than any simile. I swear to it. He's in the ugly green wooden cabinet, the cabinet built onto one of the garage walls. He had inherited it from the previous homeowners. Papa was there when he smashed the planked wooden door on my curious fingers after he'd carelessly left it unlocked. He was as quiet as a panther in the single-car parking space. He'd reinforced the shelves. Extra support never hurt nothing, he'd said. If I catch you climbing up them again, I'll crack your eardrums open like a walnut shell. Brandied cherries, thorny blackberries, and drunken raisins, a container of bay leaves, dried leaves broad enough to cover your crotch. They're all in there, his damned pantry. Canned jars of minestrone soups, pickled venison with bone broth. Broth he'd use to boil meat off a cat's ribs. I love Papa. I can't get enough of him even though he'd never taught me a damned thing or showed me an ounce of affection. He'd beaten me so hard once. He used a messy summer fly swatter. The kids at school teased me for more than a week. They'd called me Porch Face because of the clumsy screen door in the back of the house. I wouldn't dare tell them the truth. Don't get me wrong, I truly... Love him, Papa, way over in Italy. But if not for the distance, I'd kill him. It's like when ivory dominoes fall, Italy. One after the other. First cousin Adriana broke her back. 
She'd been living taking care of Nono and Nona in their two-bedroom inherited cottage. Winter had been a bastarda that year. Those cloudy, cumuli scoundrels just wouldn't let up or leave. The storms had come over the icebox Apuan Mountains like some uninvited, frost-bitten diesel train. They huffed and puffed their swollen blue faces, clean out of Switzerland and Austria. The back stoop and steps had frozen. In the last atmospheric disturbance, Adriana had forgotten all their scratchy linens she'd hung out on the clothesline in the AM. When she'd clipped on the wooden clothespins, there had been sunshine clawing itself over the horizon. The landscape was frozen, but the fragile sun rays had been as dry as a church mouse fart. She'd seen them as flags, all the sheets and towels. They'd flapped parallel in the same direction of the sleet. If the sky hadn't been so windy, they might have frozen all their stiffness in place. Both feet had come out from underneath her hefty girth. She attempted to scoot across the stoop and down a short run of stairs. Adriana's heard the crunch before, the time she chopped fresh kindling for the cottage's cast-iron stove. She'd cracked her cervical spine in three places. The medico had ordered rest and that she lay as stiff as a corpse for at least two months. I don't know what in the hell they call them in Italy, but the doctor had also thrown a shitload of benzodiazepines at her to uplift her mood, he'd said. Adriana had sounded as if she was a happy zombie. She'd begun to slur her words. So, she used the neighbor on the other end of the phone. This neighbor lady, Aurelia, was one of the few in the village who knew broken English. Adriana had stirred up the whole neighborhood with her high maintenance and melodramatics, most likely from her being high. In short order, Aurelia, the helpful neighbor, quit. She'd had enough of nursing Adriana, as well as cooking and feeding Nono and Nona. She'd shouted in Italian when she'd left the cottage for the last time, I'm not going to be used as some kind of crazy finger puppet. That's when mother and father's trip was a done deal. Hearing all this, mother and father had jumped on the first international flight out of San Francisco to Milan. Apparently, Caravaggio, Italy is another Hotel California, like the Eagles' hit song. Once you arrive, you can never leave. By God, nothing was going to happen to Nono and Nona. My parents had too much invested, not the least the thirty-odd dollars they'd send to Italy every month. I'm sure their leaving had nothing to do with any future inheritance. Back at the house. Although Mama is in Italy, she's never really left the house. She's in the pasta sauce she taught me to make. Buttloads of fresh garlic, a pinch of brown sugar, a teaspoon of vinegar, fresh basil, Papa's rusty tomatoes, and her secret weapon, Italian ground sausage with fennel. There are enough jars of Mama's pasta sauce in the green pantry to fill up a Venetian gondola. I almost forgot. Add about one half cup of tawny port wine, not the cooking kind. 
in northern Italy, that's how we roll. She'd used her intoxicating pasta sauce and pasta to keep Papa fat and uncomfortable, too uncomfortable for kinky sex. Mama had been the comet shine in the scratched porcelain sink. I'm messy. She cleaned the kitchen floor good enough to eat off, vacuumed the rug in front of the big screen TV, left wheel marks resembling perfectly furrowed OCD rows of corn, truer than any in Kansas. I have stacks of dirty dishes on the coffee table. The washer broke, and now I'm using the dishwasher to clean all my clothes. I almost forgot. Mama is down the drain in the bathtub and out the sewer pipes, swimming toward the main line. Everything she ever did is out there. I hope the witch stays in Italy, never comes home. Mama's into saving. She's a penny pincher. She'd hoarded change, mainly the spare dimes that could fit in Papa's discarded whiskey and cognac, Toro Gordo see-through tubes. The nasty cigars never left his mouth. Each tube was gifted at storing their designated dimes, each dime held snugly in its place. Dimes were tight, seemingly pinching themselves into place, each dime a fool, should they even think of leaving the nested affection. I've spent every one of those mercury-headed sons of bitches, those President Franklin D. Roosevelt in God We Trust counterfeit dimes. Money is evil. It needed to be punished. I gave them all away at the Thunder Valley Casino, just north of Sacramento. It had taken a lot of liquor, anger, and time to spend the 48 tubes of stolen dimes. Losing had never felt so good. Returning at 3 a.m. Saturday morning, I'd slept most of the weekend away, having gorged on an all-you-can-eat buffet. Canning. With COVID and all, and since Mama's cooking is in Italy, I've taken up canning. Canning has become extremely popular with my generation. I am a millennial. It's a safe, effective, and simple process, and it's crazy inexpensive. Mother made me inexpensive. Cheap enough to toss away if she could have gotten away with it. She gave me to Papa, expecting he'd use me up. I hate her as much as sin, with all her paternal conspiracies. People can take advantage of canning to preserve just about anything. Fruits, peaches, plums, thorny and bloody blackberries picked in the boiling sun along the Yuba River. Vegetables, soups, sauces, and meats. Damned right, all kinds of proteins. In the late 1700s, that crazy war genius, Napoleon Bonaparte, 
commissioned a regional search for a better method to preserve food. He believed that an army travels on its stomach. He was looking for a less expensive and more efficient way to feed his armies. He intended to make food last longer and give his armies nutritional food, meat, to build up their strength. Their heritage of strength is what allowed the troops to perform more of their carnage in all the battles. And so, Napoleon proposed a hefty bounty to anyone who could come up with a better method of preserving food in quantity with a long shelf life, even though most of Napoleon's soldiers had a limited expiration date. A genius named Nicholas Appert had claimed the prize, though it took until 1810 for him to perfect his discovery. But, like most time-proven inventions used for the military, it would take about 50 years before the methodology and know-how would trickle down to the average family. Think of Ronald Reagan's Star Wars. By 1858, this brilliant cylindrically shaped man, John Mason, had invented the iconic reusable mason jar. The mason jar is the gold standard of canning, even today. The best thing Mama taught me before she left was how to can. I do thank her for that, if nothing else, and I'll be grateful to her for the rest of my life. The Supplies 1. Boiling water bath canner or a large, deep sauce pot with a lid and a rack. 2. Glass preserving jars, lids, and bands. Always start with new lids. 3. Common kitchen utensils, such as a wooden spoon, ladle, and paring knife. 4. Quality ingredients fresh fruits and vegetables. 5. Jar lifter. 6. Home canning funnel. 7. Bubble freer and headspace tool. I admit, it's become an obsession, canning. It's been more than a hot minute, well, over ten years now, since... Papa and Mama left for Italy. I might have to whisper, but I think I'm a better canner than my missing Mama. You heard me right. Mama went missing while in Italy. She's still missing. If I sound a little matter-of-fact, well, for Christ's sakes, I am. I don't miss her a bit. Hell... She's everywhere I turn in this two-story, falling-apart clapboard house. Let's get back to canning. I don't have time for terribly long stories. Bitches, I am the RuPaul Andre Charles of canning. I've got canning game. Over the years, I've mastered the art. Yes, you heard me correct. It's an art. Squatty, stainless steel jar lids. Lids that stack in gorgeous, shiny rows in Papa's garage pantry. Tall, long mason jars. The glass of stars, full of peaches, their skin sloughing off. Don't you just love the word, slough? 
I eat the juicy peaches, skin first. I've preserved kidney beans and canned eggplant, the kind that resembles the emoji penis. I've canned olives as dark as jackal eyes, red pimentos for pupils, green-fingered asparagus, some as thick as longshoremen's thumbs, the rest as long as your middle finger. I've stored them all. I figure all the canned goods in Papa's green cupboard should last at least five freaking years. Think about it. Not having to shop for food. All the plague masks, all the germs, the disgusting people. I quit my job. I worked for the state of California in IT. My employer was the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. It was a nice fit for the longest time, the past 20 years. But with all the write-ups, suspensions, and disciplinary action, I told the governor of the Golden State of California to shove his state job up his Department of Controller's ass. I'd had it. The talking behind my back and taunting had gone on for months. I was accused of sexual harassment, gender insensitivity, and for keeping less than standard hygienic practices. It was never written up formally, but my immediate supervisor had also accused me of excessive flatulence. He'd said, I'll save you all the embarrassment by not having it on the record. They assumed Father had simply disappeared in the woods. He'd been hiking a lot after Mama's disappearance. Well, he'd disappeared too. It was in early February. Uh, um, it had been snowing a lot. The Apuan forests were deep and dark, all that bullshit. Think of me as the Red Stapler Man in the hit movie Office Space. I'd been placed in a corner next to a dingy wall at the end of a long row of cubicles. I'd been made fun of for the longest time. There had been food on my shirt that I'd made sure to wash at least once a month. The broken clip on my suspenders, my olive-oiled hair, a litany of complaints. They'd said, he's a pig, eats most of his food out of jars, he farts like a bull in a software china shop, he scrambles and breaks every damned software application and Microsoft Excel spreadsheet account that he touches, his math is sloppy, he doesn't add up. Fuck you, I shouted when Kevin won the yearly IT award. It wouldn't have been so bad, but I used the third floor's intercom. This girl named Nancy had turned me in for wearing real pig's ears for Halloween. I thought it was appropriate. I used elastic and Velcro and had dried them out. Fuck you! I'd shouted when they'd told me who it was that complained. Fuck all of you, Nancy! I'd said. You bitches are going to end up in a mason canning jar! I was fired the very next day. They walked me clear down the block to the bus stop. Okay, I get this feeling that you are making fun of me too. This is so personal, and I've been sharing so much of myself. 
I know you think I'm crazy, reader. You can't fool me. Don't flatter yourself, smarty pants. You think I killed my mother and father and jarred them. No, and no, and hell no! I'm in Papa's garage. He won't mind. I'm using his workbench vice. Grande Nono had a workbench too, over there in Italy. He'd used it to sharpen all his slaughtering tools and wheat scythe. Grande Nono and I had always gotten along. I loved him. He's the one that taught me why the sheep in the foothills of the Alps have two downhill legs shorter than the other, walking the hills and all in one direction. Papa did everything big, including installing a commercial-sized workbench vice. His vice is industrial red and shiny as glass. I tighten it. Tighter and tighter. Nothing ever escaped father. He held me down, two knees on my back, both hands in my long, pissy hair. I'd wet the bed again. As I grew older, he'd do this, but for other reasons. I turned the handle. I have the vice's dog fixed in place. I watch as the moving jaw moves in the direction of the stationary jaw. The main screws seem to elongate as the vice grips tighter, one of life's paradoxes. I crank and crank until Papa's double-barreled shotgun is fixed in place. I saw and I saw, using the hacksaw. As the storm shakes the rafters, I play Papa's favorite CD using his cheap flea market vintage player. How he loved him some Brahms, especially the classic haunted lullabies steeped in all the Mephistophelian memories they evoked. He loved the anxious melody, all the nervous piano keys, the white noise that kept my, his, demons at bay. Piano Concerto Number no. 2 was his favorite, with its assemblage of Stradivarius violins fluttering their hyaline wings off. How it reminds me of the times I'd torn the wings off the butterflies, whenever the pain ferreted itself into the light, sniffing for vengeance. Most of the cold steel barrel falls to the floor. I sand and sand what's left of the barrel until it's smooth to the touch. It never heats up. It remains cold. I snap on the TV in the family room. It takes a while to find the channel with only white noise. Next to me, on the makeshift end table, is a mason jar. It's filled to the brim with pickled pig's feet broth, mostly bitter vinegar. I grasp the jar in my sweaty palm. I swish the dog's eyes in a clockwise direction. 
I placed the vacuum-packed jar back on the card table next to the couch. The age-darkened sheep's eyes spin and whirl in a circular motion of sight, no longer tethered to their brains by any pesky optic nerves or even semblance of reality. I pick up the jar again. I stare back and spin the wolf's eyes in a counterclockwise direction. I smile. I place the cyclone of deception and conspiracy back on the table. Now I can use my index finger on the trigger. The shotgun barrel is so much shorter now. Using my toes was unrealistic since I've gained so much weight after being terminated. Terminated. What a harsh word, isn't it? Because of all the nutritious canned protein, I've become a little cherub. There's no way my chubby two toes were going to blast me over the moon. Dear reader, if you've gotten this far, I'm truly sorry. You'll have to sit on the couch now, directly across from me, and watch. You'll have company. They are watching me too. The feral eyes are strobe lights, a horrific merry-go-round of sight. The sun's a bitch. Around and around they go. The room fades to black. The TV splatters. You know most of the rooms in the house by now. After you puke your guts out, you run toward the leaky shower in the master bath. The blistering hot water can't rub your bloody skin off fast enough. Fuck the crime scene, you shout at the top of your lungs into the ceiling. You contemplate how your pretty world has just shit its pants. You exit the shower. The room has turned into a psych ward spa. Everything is a vapor. You splash ice water on your face over the sink in front of the massive mirror. You rub and rub at the steam on the glass. Directly behind you, in the mirror, is your new reality. You can see it clearly now. It stands bleeding, broad-shouldered. Somehow, the brawny shoulders are holding up a broken marble bowl of cherries. The bloody cherries are globing over the rim of the bowl. After you've determined the broken bowl is what's left of my skull, I make you feel the icy barrel against your flesh, directly behind your pounding heart. Now, sons of bitch, the lights really do go out. I hope you enjoyed Broken Marble Cherry Bowl, as written by Daniel A. Cardoza and voiced by Eric Peabody. As a reminder, 
You can hear more of Eric Peabody on our official YouTube channel, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as at vikingguitar.com, where you'll find more information about his many music and sound design related projects. As for the author, keep up with Daniel A. Cardoza on creepypastastories.com, where we're looking forward to featuring more of his amazing work in the near future. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>